Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. This past week started with a tragedy in Highland Park, Illinois, as yet another mass shooting took the lives of seven people and injured more than 30 others. Officials say that 21-year-old Robert Cremo III opened fire on people gathered for a 4th of July parade, perched from the roof of a building, firing more than 70 rounds. Police say he planned the attack for weeks and dressed as a woman to disguise himself so he could blend in with the crowd and escape. The gun he used in the attack and other guns he had were purchased legally despite a suicide attempt in April of 2019 and another incident where Highland Park police were called to his family home after he threatened to kill everyone. After those incidences, he passed four different background checks that cleared him for the firearm purchase after his father co-signed for him. For more on how Cremo legally bought these guns, we'll speak to Monica Ng, reporter at Axios Chicago. Yeah, I mean, it is a disturbing list of events when you hear it ticked off because in April 2019, the Highland Park police were called to his family's house after he'd had a suicide attempt. In September 2019, Highland Park police again were called to the family house because he had, quote, threatened to kill everyone. That time they confiscated 16 knives, a dagger and a sword. Um, and yet, Four months later, the Illinois State Police granted him his permit to buy guns. And in Illinois, they have a, an interesting thing. They have what's called an FOID card, F-O-I-D, right. which is a firearm yeah. owner's identification card. And that's the thing that uh, you know really allows you to purchase the gun. He went through four firearm purchase background checks between 2020 and 2021. So to get the FOID card, you can't get it on your own until you're 21, but his father sponsored him and co-signed for him when he was 19. That would make his father liable for any damages that happened with those firearms until he turned 21. And he turned 21 nine months ago. And so he was able to get the flood card with the sponsorship of his father, who sponsored him three months after the I'm going to kill everybody. The father's lawyer has told the press that the father did not know about the 2019 incident where he threatened to kill everyone and had his knives taken away. And yet the Illinois State Police say, Actually, he did know all about it. In fact, he came back to the Highland Park Police and said, hey, those are my knives. I want them back. I just had my son holding them for, quote, safekeeping. Right. 
So it's pretty clear he did know about it, and yet he did co-sign and sponsor his son to get the gun permit. And then I asked Illinois State Police, I said, why did you grant it? They said that the family never pressed formal charges when he made those death threats. And on top of that, a mental health professional never filed paperwork that would have made him uneligible for that Floyd card. And he was not committed. And that's what we hear in a lot of these cases that we've heard recently, especially with other shooters, right? If nobody presses charges, and you know, I know a lot of families don't want to put their own family members through through bad things like that. That's probably at play here, right? You know, there's a lot of stuff going on. But if charges aren't made, if official things aren't down, then it's not in the system. And when somebody goes through these background checks, nothing is pinged. And that's the unfortunate part. Cremo's father spoke to ABC News, and he says that he thinks that whole uh, threat of killing everybody, he said that was taken out of context. And his sister called it in. He he likened it to a child's outburst. And and as you mentioned, so he knew about it, and then he still sponsored uh, his kid for the Floyd card. I think the Illinois State Police said that they're going to conduct an investigation into this. Yeah, and let's see what they find. But at this point, they said, we followed the letter of the law. And, you know, based on what we had officially on the record, we could not deny him the FOIA card. But, you know, it should be noted that the Highland Park Police reported him to the Illinois State Police as a clear and present danger in September 2019. A little bit more on uh, the father's involvement in all this, because, you know, he's obviously trying to protect himself, saying, you know, he's not culpable in this. Again, speaking to ABC News, he said he he signed consent for his son to go through this process. And he was talking about the Illinois State Police. He said they do the background checks, whatever that entails. I'm not exactly sure. And you're either approved or denied. And he was approved. So he's throwing it back on the whole background check system to limit his liability, obviously. And again, but that that is another problem, you know. It's tough to get anything going with expanded background checks, but increasingly we're having to see that, you know, maybe we should start looping in social media as part of these background checks because we saw, we already heard a lot of the bad stuff that Cremo III was putting online. He had music videos that showed mass killings, that showed him being killed in in a police shootout, that showed the aftermath of a school shooting. Those are very disturbing images, but I guess you have to say what can count against you when they are deciding whether or not you can obtain a firearm. Apparently, none of these things rose to that level. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, some high-powered rifles. I know he had some handguns and all that. Again, it's just a pattern we've seen all too recently. And we're going through this process right now with Congress and passing new gun legislation, expanded background checks for people in this age range, and, you know, more, uh, you know, red flag laws, hopefully across the country. But again, these things designed to catch people like this, it still wouldn't have worked in these cases because nothing was flagged officially by police or people pressing charges, family members. All very unfortunate, uh, but something that we need to get get a handle of because, as I mentioned, it's just happening all too much. So we've talked to Democratic lawmakers who'd like to see an assault weapons ban. It should be noted that this type of weapon actually wasn't even considered an assault weapon. Um, It is semi-automatic. And so you would need to have a semi-automatic weapon ban to get rid of something like this Smith & Wesson M15. Also, we talked to some Republican lawmakers. They said, well, we think if you've had your knives taken away, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun. So both of those things might have been able to stop it, but the law as it stands right now would not have stopped him. Yeah, a lot of work yet to be done. Monica Eng, reporter at Axios Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There's a lot to unpack with what happened in Highland Park 
And part of this is looking into the shooter's past. To explore more on the online trail of violent imagery that he posted online, we'll speak to Ben Collins, senior reporter at NBC News. Yeah, he apparently planned this for a few weeks, according to officials at a press conference on Tuesday. They said that he dressed in women's clothing to hide his face and neck tattoos. He had a lot of face and neck tattoos. Ordered to get up to the rooftop, then he left the rooftop, went to his mom's car where he had another weapon. He had left the initial long gun at the scene of the crime. The ATF was able to trace that gun, which is in part how they found him. And uh, he was eventually captured outside of his mom's vehicle. So that's how they caught this, they believe, suspected killer. You know, going to the, a little bit more on how he planned this for some time, you know, uh, there was, I guess, a post that he made about the parade route. You know, when he got onto this, uh, the rooftop, you know, he scaled a fire escape ladder that was there and he fired more than 70 rounds when he, when he was up there. I mean, they said that the shootings or at least the victims seemed random, but a lot of planning to at least know how to get up there. And as we mentioned, the disguise, you know, he uh, very thought out on what he was going to do to try to get away at least. Yeah, this was a person who was obsessed with mass murder. You could tell through his online profiles that this is what he was mostly focused on on the Internet. And he was he made a music video, by the way. He was a rapper. He went by a wake on places like Spotify and YouTube. He was not as small time as these other previous shooters were. You know, in these music videos, he simulated a school shooting. He simulated, in fact, in a cartoon in one of them, uh, getting a shootout and dying at the hand of the hands of the police. So he has thought about this a lot. And in other YouTube videos, he did. He took a picture or a video in one of the YouTube videos of that main drag in Highland Park where that parade was set to go through. Um, this was weeks beforehand or months beforehand on his YouTube video. So he had been planning this for a very long time. And he had been focused on mass murder on the internet for even longer. Yeah, it's an interesting thing when we always talk about these shooters. You know, a lot of time, you know, if they if they do leave a manifesto or something to that effect, right, it's uh, on a server or it's on uh, some type of platform where there might not be that many observers, not not that many subscribers to whatever they're doing. But you're right, in this case, you know, he, through his music, he had it on Spotify, he had stuff on YouTube, all, uh, he had a Discord server. There was a, quite a number of people who were taking in the stuff that he was putting out there. Now, he wasn't necessarily throwing out plans or cryptic messages like, you know, I'm going to be shooting something up. But there were a lot of people that were observing his content. Yeah, he had dozens of either fans or people who followed his work in that Discord server, which for most people is like a message board where people can go and interact with and, and talk about an artist. And, you know, in one of those music videos, he does, he drops bullets in a simulated classroom out of his hand. You can see him reaching into a bag and then afterwards feigning as if he had just shot up a school. That was something that was viewed almost 50,000 times, posted in January. This was not a big secret in those spaces, but he never made explicit threats. He never said explicitly that he was going to do something like this. He was just playing into this aesthetic of mass murder, which has uh, propped up on the internet and extremism spaces over the last few years. People always try to ask questions about political leanings, things like that. As far as what we know on his uh, online trail, we don't see too much. There's a couple of references uh, where he was wearing a Trump flag or he was at a Trump rally. But other than that, not too much, right? Yeah, there's not a lot there. So he, he what did visit, it appears, a Trump motorcade Sometime uh, around 2021, early 2021, late 2022, he took a video of himself at that Trump motorcade. There was a picture of him draped in a Trump flag. There was another few pictures of him at another right wing rally with the Trump flag as well. And then he railed against communists a little bit in a separate discord as well. But 
the largest motivation. This was in the vast amount of just pure content this guy pushed out. It was infinitesimal compared to his mass murder fetishism, which he had consistently pushed out to his followers. This idea that there was something like, I don't know, benevolent or something about mass murder was a very scary stuff that seemed more in line with an actual ideology. The guy really wanted to be viewed as a mass murderer. He left a manifesto that was just numbers, sort of like the Zodiac killer might. This guy had been planning to become a mass murderer for a very long time. The politics stuff seems secondary or supplementary compared to it. A little bit more on some of these online groups. You know, we did an interview on the podcast not too long ago with Juliet Kayyem. She's a former assistant secretary for Homeland Security, talking about how even a lone wolf shooter, and that's the indication we have here, always has like an online pack. There's always people online that support these things and drum things up. And you were talking about how, you know, on these Discord channels and on 4chan, right away there was a bunch of trolls that were kind of elevating this stuff, using it to make memes. And this is kind of how that machine keeps rolling. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if it's a bunch of lone wolves, at some point it becomes a pack of wolves, you would say. That's basically exactly what's going on here. They all sort of reference each other. They reference previous shootings. For example, they call Dylan Roof, the Charleston shooter, they call him Saint Roof in some of these forums. They talk about the amount of kills as if it's a statistic that you have to surpass. They try to get added to these lists of people they believe to be iconic mass shooters. This is a cult of death. This guy has been pushed this ideology that he might get some sort of symbolism around his name, that he might get some sort of lionization, either in death or in jail, if he is able to successfully kill a bunch of people in a mass shooting. And that's what happens in these spaces. These people have very little or no real life friends or community. But online in these spaces that lionize murder, they believe that they can be made into heroes in those spaces. And what do we hear from people that have uh, maybe known Cremo in the past. We, you know, Highland Park is not such a huge place. The mayor there, Nancy Rottering, knew him from when he was in Cub Scouts. She was one of the Cub Scouts leaders. There's a, a neighbor who said that, you know, they kind of kept to themselves, but his father once described him as having emotional issues at school. They talked to his uncle as well. Like a, a couple of local reporters talked to his uncle who said there was no signs of this, which I have a very hard time believing, considering he you know, made a school shooting music video with the help of other people. Look, it is an isolated part of this person's life that exists on the Internet, largely. And again, this person was 21, 22 years old when all this stuff started to take off in his life. He was out of school. He did not have a traditional job, apparently worked at Panera Bread briefly. And the isolation was likely profound in that situation. So the people who would check on him on a daily basis, the people who would see him at school and be able to red flag that sort of thing, were not around to do it. Then the other thing is the law enforcement capabilities of this are very difficult. If you're in the Proud Boys or Patriot Front or any of these more formalized militias, the feds are keeping an eye on you. The feds may be in your chats. They might be going to your events, that sort of thing. But if you are living alone and you're making you know, videos that aren't actual threats but are talking about school shootings, it's very hard for the feds to keep tabs on that. And sometimes they do check in on these people in real life. They checked in on a Buffalo shooter. They checked in on shooters back as far back as 2018, 2019, of school shootings and they just say that they're trolling and they just keep going about their day. So it is a very difficult law enforcement challenge and a very difficult community challenge when these people are just locked inside. Ben Collins, senior reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. 
It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. Oracle.com slash strategic. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. WNBA star Brittany Griner has been detained in a Russian prison since February 17th when she was caught in an airport near Moscow with hash oil and vape cartridges. She's on trial right now where she just pled guilty, and this guilty verdict could carry a sentence of 10 years. Her best hope of getting out could be a prisoner exchange. But the U.S. has long been wary of these, and the DOJ usually opposes them. For more on what to know, we'll speak to Louise Radnovsky, sports reporter at The Wall Street Journal. The only one additional development that's been significant in the last few months is that the State Department has already declared Brittany Griner to be wrongfully detained in Russia. That happened unusually swiftly in her case. A declaration that somebody has been wrongfully detained might mean that the U.S. government believes that they are innocent of what they've been accused of. It may also mean that the United States government believes that the charges against them are perhaps exaggerated or their treatment is being harsher than it would have otherwise been for political reasons. It doesn't necessarily rely on that innocence. And so with that wrongful detention determination, the United States government is committed to securing her release. They don't go to bat necessarily for everybody detained overseas, although they they offer them constant support. But for wrongfully detained people, they are committed to bringing them home. And in the case of Russia, that involves Brittany Griner and another American as well, Paul Whelan, who's also been deemed wrongfully detained there. Part of the problems here are the the difficulties, right, is the Justice Department just kind of naturally objects to such deals when it comes to these prisoner swaps. And there have been a few people identified here that are on our side that uh, that the Russians would like to get back. But, you know, there's issues of whether it could be a lopsided deal or political things that, that can be part of these decisions. And, and that's just one of the things, you know, the U.S. just doesn't like to go that route. But that's kind of the only way it seems like that we'll be able to get them out. That is the main way that Americans have been brought back from Russia recently, most notably in late April 
Trevor Reed, who was swapped for Konstantin Yaroshenko. And at the time, the president said that it was a difficult decision that he had not taken lightly. Senior administration officials said the same thing, even as they were cheering Trevor Reed's release back into the United States and to his family. So it is something that is done. It's usually the way things have been done over the last 60 years. But there are other options available that the Israelis used in the case of, of one of their citizens when she was detained. Generally, though, prisoner exchanges for merge is the likeliest route for a negotiation. And as you pointed out, a negotiation does seem to be the most plausible scenario here in which Brittany Griner gets to come home, at least in, in, in under a decade, because of the length of sentence that she's facing and because cases that proceed as far as hers has in Russia or indeed in, in many countries around the world do not typically end in an acquittal. One of the names that we've heard about as a possible trade for Brittany Griner is Victor Bout. He's a Russian convicted of arms dealing. Bout's lawyer and other people have said, well, he has served a lot of time. He's set to be released in maybe about five years. Maybe this is a good deal right now. But as I mentioned, there's so much uh, as part of it, you know, if uh, the whole political pawn thing kind of comes up when we talk about these people. Russia, it should be noted, denies that Brittany Griner has been taken as a political pawn. They say that she is accused of breaking the laws of the country and that her case is going through the legal system. That is exactly what the United States would say about the convictions that were secured in Victor Booth's case and in the case of other potential exchange candidates. The Justice Department officials do seem to see in some ways that the lopsidedness trade involving Brittany Griner and, and Victor Boot, as well as the general opposition to exchanges or even using the word exchanges, we reported on Wednesday, because it implies a symmetry between the two countries that they do not believe is accurate. That said, as you noted as well, there are advocates for a swap, including the judge who sentenced Victor Boot in 2012, who, who said that 25 years at the time, which was a mandatory minimum, seemed to her to be a sentence that was too long for what essentially amounted to a sting operation. He was willing to do what he had been accused of doing, was caught by DEA agents in a setup saying that he was willing to to sell these arms, but he didn't actually sell the arms in in this instance. And that's a point that, that she's made. There is, of course, a question about whether a negotiation could secure the release of both Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan for Brick to Brute. That's an additional element to this because Paul Whelan has served several years in a Russian prison and, and Brittany Griner has only been there, relatively speaking, for months. Louise Rednovsky, sports reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. 
Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.